Hey everyone, welcome back to Stories from the Influencer Economy. This is Ryan Williams. Hope you're well. It is a humid and hot day in Southern California. Hope you're beating the heat wherever you are. Quick reminder, this episode is with my man, Brian Koppelman. One of my favorite episodes, I'm reposting it. For those who missed it last fall, I interviewed Brian at his office in New York City, and I really enjoyed this one from a creative perspective. I hope you do too. So stick around in the end. He gives me a lot of great advice for my book and launching the podcast and the keys to creativity in the modern era. Also wanted to remind everyone to go to influencereconomy.com slash book. That's where you can find all the updates for my upcoming book, The Influencer Economy, which, of course, you know by now. So really excited to say that it's going to be available for everyone to read. So influencereconomy.com slash book. Sign up for exclusives and videos and chapters ahead of the launch. Without further ado, Brian Koppelman. What would you say is the intersection of your... uh the guests, their common thread, outside of the moment, the inflection point? Well, what I'm really interested in, why I do it, is I'm, I'm really interested in the way in which remarkable people, a better way to say it is, the way uh, people who accomplish remarkable things process the big moments in their lives. I actually don't really think there's such a thing as remarkable people. People um, are the result of the actions that they take and then how they process the feedback from those actions. And so I'm really interested in, hey, uh, you know, how did, um, how did Baron Davis, uh, how did Baron Davis, when he got to leave South Central uh, and go to a private school uh, and be around a group of people who were from entirely different circumstances, you know, what was it in him that enabled him to thrive when other people might flame out? How, how was, you know, or... Uh, and Baron Davis, his senior year, people told him he could never play professional basketball. You know, how does a guy like that do that? How does Seth Meyers, um, how does Seth Meyers frame for himself being on the cover of Time Magazine? Uh, what story does he tell himself that that allows him uh, to remain humble and focused on the work and not to get carried away? How does Mario Batali have an aneurysm and then the next year open another three restaurants? Like, I think most of us when either very good things or very bad things happen, um, often uh, we have this incredible inner urge to revert back to the norm. Yeah. Uh, whereas people who do great things push way past it and use these moments, bad or good, as some kind of fuel. And, and that's what I'm Has this always been about. like at the heart of your creative process? Well, I didn't... I wasn't able to articulate it for myself for a long time but I've always been I've always found the I've, I've always found uh, people who could harness these these times really compelling and um, as someone who studied con men my whole life uh, and hucksters I've always loved self-help um, and I've loved to try to figure out who means it who's scamming uh, who can I get something from that's actually meaningful and um, and who can I uh, you know how can I identify traits in some of the people um, that I think are clearly you know criminal and then use those in my fiction in uh-huh. my movies so that whole sort of like language has always been something that I've found incredibly animating. And then the more that I've gone deeper into all of that, um, the more I've realized it's a subject that I uh, want to spend a lot of time mining for my own personal development. And a lot of that ties into being a parent, which is you know trying to learn as a parent a whole bunch of stuff to help frame these things for my children. Right. I, so one of the reasons why I want to talk to you was your Mark Maron podcast could be put into a time capsule. That was like the most opposite, open. Usually, Marin's the one asking questions, and he gets the psychosis out there. But you were like, "Don't take this the wrong way." You were like part therapist, part friend, part fan, and it was it was the essence of podcasting and how you get to know someone through their earbuds. And I thought that at the end, when you're talking about Lauren Michaels and how we should get him on the show, and you know all the trials and tribulations that we all know about him through 400 episodes, even if you've only heard. 
five of them. You, and he, and he, he can't accept that he's doing well. And you, at one point you asked him, you said, so Mark, you know, you're like, what happens now? You're at this moment where you've, you've reached this success and, and he like couldn't embrace, and I'm paraphrasing what you said, but he couldn't, em- just couldn't embrace it. He's like, I, I still have these psychotic moments. I get an email, someone tells me my show's, you know, crap for whatever reason. And I then write back later, comma, Marin, to some email. Like, how was that interview? Well, I loved talking to Mark because I agree with you about podcasts. Um, I mean, that's the other piece of this. You know, I walk to work every day and, and back. And um, so I walk at least three miles a day, maybe five some days. And, um, and I love listening to music. And in the morning, very often I'll listen to music. But when I walk home in the evening, I found that I loved listening to podcasts and I loved, yeah, I love this American life or snap judgment or Bloomberg's startup, not Michael Bloomberg, Bloomberg network, Alex Bloomberg's startup thing. Um, but I really started getting into this because of a Marin and, um, the intimacy of those conversations and the way you start to get to know the guest, but also the host, and the relationship that you develop as a listener through just the audio, I just found uh, trans- really transporting, loved it. And you know, listening to Mark, I mean, you walk around cursing him because sometimes, uh, as he knows, as I said to him on, on the podcast, sometimes you're exasperated by yeah. him turning the conversation back to himself. But so I'd getting to, you know, I have to say, I. Never would have done a podcast if it weren't for WTF. You know, that's what made me think, okay, here's a way to, uh, here's a form, here's a format that works for having these wide ranging conversations. You're not marketing out to an audience. People can find you and it's self-selecting. And Mm. if they're there, they want the thing that you're doing. Um, and so you can have this real relationship with the guests and with the audience, and it just seemed uh, really exciting to me. So when I had Mark there, um, where'd you interview him? The garage? No, I interviewed Mark at uh, the studio where I do these interviews, and it happens to be a building Lauren Michaels owns a couple of the floors, and so that's why I was able yeah. to uh, bring that stuff up. Um, but he and I, did, I had written for Grantland an article about Marin's Jim Brewer podcast. That's right. And in, when I did that, Mark's producer reached out to me, and Mark and I, who had, had met before Mark, reached out to me. And um, I already, when I wrote that piece, I knew I was going to start doing this podcast. And that's, what made, that's why I was writing about it. I was just thinking about how I would want to do it, what, what I'd want mine to feel like. Um, and because I'd listened so closely in writing the Brewer thing, I just had a ton of questions for Mark when he came in, and I felt like I was really had crawled into his psychology. Now, last week, the week before last, I was in California, and I went to the garage, and Mark interviewed me for WTO. Oh, nice. And I have to say that he more than got me back for whatever kind of like psychological deconstruction I may have done on my podcast. I mean... Uh, you know, he's the best at it. Yeah. And I left there in a daze and feeling utterly exposed. Was it therapeutic? No, it was miserable. <laughs> I mean, just miserable. Is that your own personal feeling? Or do you think that's a common feeling when people exit the garage? I have a lot of friends who've done the show. I mean, everybody pretty much feels. So yeah, maybe there's a, I mean, You're exposed. there could be a cathartic moment. But, but as, yes, I, uh, shit, man, that guy is really good at what he does. And he just, you know, even if you're armed and prepared... He can just burrow, he can burrow in. And so you and the Berbigula podcast. Berbiglia. Which, uh, Berbigula. Berbiglia. Mike Berbigula. Okay. He even does a joke about this, people mispronounce his name. Yeah. With rappers. So uh, when you had him on the show, you were contextualizing a bit. But let's do this just for fun. Ready? Burr. Burr. Big. Big. Leah. Leah. Now we Berbiglia. got Berbiglia. We got it. Phenomenal. I've met him many times. You grew, I, you, I, I call him Mike. That's the perfect. Good choice. Good choice. I used to see him at this place in Brooklyn when I come to visit from D.C. It's a pizza shop. He did jokes about pizza shops, and and then he would give out free pizza, and it was a $5 show. It'd be him, Dimitri Martin. And this is seven, eight years ago. And Mike's he, a he knocked great it out. guy and um, a brilliant 
brilliant comedian. I love that guy. Yeah. yeah. In that episode, you're talking about Marin's show and how, in some ways, Marin has a, a, a part of him as the present-day Johnny Carson. And you said for a variety of reasons. One is that people think he, say he's nice, but he's prickly. Well, maybe, I, I, maybe Mike said that. I think what I was talking about um, is that, you know, for a long time, Mark... And I think I said this to him on, on our podcast on, on The Moment, but I, I think that Mark always railed against the gatekeepers, right? He always oh, yeah. railed against the people who kept him out of the mainstream. But in this new landscape, for a long time, when a comedian would go on WTF, it would give them uh, a place in the firmament. It, it legitimized them. So that he was one of those gatekeepers. He has become right. one of those gatekeepers. I mean, he's broadened the show now so that he's not talking to comedians only. But I still think that if you ask most comedians who haven't done the show, you know, what do you want to, you know, if you could choose between doing these three things, many of them would say, oh, I want to do WTF. You know, because you know if you do WTF, like all the SNL cast members, they listen to mm -hmm. it. You know, the writers of every cool show that's on television, they all listen to WTF. And so if you're a comedian, I think that you feel, okay, that's something I can check off the list. Now I've done that show. And so what was it, what's interesting to me is that Mark pitches himself still as an outsider, as an underdog, but he's neither of those things now. He's got his own TV show going into the third season, and he's got the most successful straight interview podcast show ever. Yep. Uh, you know, so... Hard to pitch yourself as an outsider. Yeah, he's not the underdog. And then you had a Gilbert Gottfried on. And what I loved about, I think you do tremendous research. Thanks. And you actually listen to the shows. So you could go toe for toe. You're like, Penn Jillette says you're the Miles Davis, you know, telling Gilbert Gottfried that. Like, so what goes into your, your background? Like, how do you pick people that you want to interview? I have a really strict um, rule. I will only interview people that I... Uh, I'll only interview people who I really want to research. I have to um, already basically think that something that they do or some moments in their lives um, is compelling. And then it makes it totally fun and great to do. I mean, you know, I've been, I've been totally... Uh, engaged by Gilbert Gottfried since I was 14 years old. And, um, and many of the guests on the show, they're just people who, who I know, some of them I know, right, from what I, what I do with the other however many hours of my life. And then some of them, like, I'll get pitched sometimes by a publicist. And because I do this, uh, because I, only because I want to do it, because I love doing it, because when the show uh, is great, when, I, when the conversation gets to a deep place, a place that I, uh, you know, doesn't always happen, but when it gets to a place of some kind of truth or revelation, I leave there really on a high. It's very easy for me to say no to anybody that I'm not really interested in talking to. I don't want to fake the funk. Mm -hmm. um, I want to be able to when I say, I'm so glad this person is here, I want the people listening to have no doubt that I mean it. Uh, I want them to know. I'd much rather they, that they think um, I'm too easy in the beginning, you know, that I uh, am, am too carried away, than to think that I'm phoning it in. And so I will just never phone it in. And so how many hours a week do you spend? Just the, you know, the podcast I record, let's say it's an hour and a half um, of recording. I'm lucky in that I'm a very fast reader. So, you know, sometimes I'll prep for a few hours. Sometimes it's just a, a, an hour. But I, I have a couple of things going for me. Um, I've been um, an avid reader, movie watcher, and, you know, music listener just for my entire life. And because this is what I do with my life, because I'm a, I create this stuff for my life, it's, it's just, I'm, I'm, I'm around it all the time. I'm in it all the time. And I have a good memory for this stuff. So that if I've watched a movie, if I've seen someone do stand-up, I just, I remember a lot of it. So 
I don't have to go back and listen to the podcast to remember that Penn said that about Gilbert. I remember that Penn said that about Gilbert. And um, so then when I'm thinking about it, I'll just write that stuff down. And then I have, I have pages of notes, and I basically don't refer to them during the course of the interview. I try to listen to that before. Like I, I listen to shows when I go to bed, and uh, I had to turn that off because Gilbert was laughing so loud the whole time. I mean, that guy is ridiculous. I love talking to him. That was a, a blast. I'm, I'm going on do, doing his podcast at the end of October, and I'm really uh, excited and nervous about it because those guys know so much about old, old movies. And uh, I know a lot. Like Compared to the regular person, I mean, I yeah. can really talk about that stuff. But compared to Gilbert and his co-host, Frank, I don't know anything. Yeah. So I'm going to have to try to steer the conversation to like a <laughs> post-1950 Yeah. to even stay alive. Just like movie historians is what they are? They're real historians. Oh, cool. Movies and television and music. You know, I could name the band members of a lot of bands in the 70s and 80s and 90s, but those guys could tell you who played the trombone in, you know, the first band Sinatra ever sang in in 1942. Oh, wow. So they're like detailed. I can't. Yeah. So you got to have your own thoughts going in and strategy. I guess. It's so funny how the podcasting world works that way, that people have their formats. And and how would you characterize like your ascension to podcasting? Because what's... I find interesting is you and Bill Simmons did this rounders uh, back and forth, you know, pre-podcasting, which was very conversational. And then now years later, you're part of his network. And you had no idea that podcasting would exist, that Bill would have his own network site and that that would lead to it. Like, how, how, how do you process that? Well, I mean, it's, it's awesome. I mean, no, th- this, I mean, this is goes really right to the, to the core of the thing that I talk about. Um, there was, you know, people, I was having breakfast this morning with a, a, a guy I went to law school with. And, um, where'd you go to law school? I went to Fordham law at night and this guy is an extraordinarily successful person and started from nothing, you know, 10, 11 brothers and sisters. And I mean, extraordinarily beyond the realm of comprehension, financial success. And, uh, and you know, the buddies you make in law school, when you get through that, you don't have to see them for a long time. The, the four or five people you studied with, they're really your friends for, for a long, long time. And uh, because you went through just awfulness together. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were talking about this stuff, and, and he was uh, saying, you know, how happy he was that I'd done a, a bunch of this stuff. And I, and I said, you know, and this is true, like, I've never calculated one part of it. So... I've always just led with what fascinates me. That's why it's easy to prep. That's why um, having the conversations is easy. That's what led to every movie. You know, we're sitting in a room with movie posters on the the walls of movies my partner and I wrote, directed, or produced. And all this came from only being obsessed with um, chasing down my passions. And then all the rest of it, you know, I, I was on a plane one day and, and Simmons and I were emailing and he said, you guys should direct a 30 for 30. And I was with David, my creative partner. And I said, uh, Levine, Jimmy Connors. And he said, yeah. And I wrote back Jimmy Connors and Simmons said done. And then we went and met with ESPN. We got back from that trip. They said, yes, Bill is obviously an executive producer of all the 30 for 30s. And when that came out, um, I went on his podcast. I went on the BS report. And at the, at the end of that, that conversation went really well. By then I'd done a few, I'd done Jay Moore a few times. I'd done Corolla and, um, and realized I'm interested in doing this. Got approached by some people and just called, you know, that's when I then called Bill and said, Hey, what do you think about, um, me doing a podcast? And he was like, it's perfect for Grant Lang. Talk to Jacoby. Let's do it. Very, just completely natural progression. Just authentic, normal yeah, it's, it, and and then Jacoby and I talked a lot about um, about this idea of the moment, you know, about th- this idea of building it around crucial key moments in in people's lives. So, were you a lawyer before you had your kids? Was that your path? I had graduated law school, but I was working in the music business. While I was in law school, I was working in the music. Okay, um, I was um, a talent scout for a record company uh, for a bunch of different record companies. Okay, so did you ever practice law? No, never. No, uh, not, not even for a day. But, you know, 
the whole law school experience ended up getting folded right into rounders, so it was fine. Yeah, I, totally. <laughs> yeah, you're I'm right. really glad that I got the education. It was uh, invaluable. And how does your... So you said you know, you're fascinated by people in general. So you have rounders, and you're researching people like... Uh, was the word you used mafia, or the people that were kind of behind the scenes and trying to figure out good people, what to extract from them for your characters? How do you research rounders versus a podcast? I mean, you're passionate... Because your passion's still there. You're on a film you like. Oh, well, yeah. The, I mean, listen, that is my... The, the getting to make movies is... Um, I mean, that's the thing that I wanted to do, right? When I wanted to be able to write and, uh, write and direct and, and produce movies. And, you know, it all started from, from writing and, and wanting to break through. I'd been a blocked writer until I was 30 and, and wanting to find a way to block, to, to get through that block and be able to write. And... Um, I've told this story before, but I mean, I walked into a, a poker room and I was a big poker player. I love to play poker. And I walked into this underground club and just realized, oh, there's a movie. And I called Dave and we got to work writing it. And we dove in. I mean, we spent a lot of time in illegal places. We spent a lot of time in back rooms and uh, in basements and at VFW halls that weren't really VFW halls. And, uh, you know, in weird places in Atlantic City and Vegas and... And even then, um, before the internet, I would find these magazines about poker and then get a journalist's name who wrote in the magazine. And then I would write the journalist a handwritten letter. And uh, if I had to be in California for some other reason, I would go meet that person or a poker player. And um, a skill that I worked very hard to develop since I was very young is the ability to draw people out. So that... uh, the ability to sit and find the thing in you that's really interesting to me and to, um, in recognizing that in you, making you feel really good talking to me, that's something I work very hard to, to, to do because my tendency is to talk. And so I trained myself. Uh, and, I, and because I'm fa- I am so interested in you uh, and in what makes you who you are, I was able, even then, to get some guy who was playing poker at 3.30 in the morning to tell me all about why. And even maybe he'd reveal something by saying it out loud. He would be learning something about himself for the first time. Mm-hmm. But I'd be learning it, too. And Dave right. would be learning it, too. You know? Yeah. And now... I mean, that's what I do on the podcast. Yeah. I mean, it's not any different. And your 30 for 30 Jimmy Connors is great. Thanks. I mean, that, thank you. That's a perfect example. My wife didn't really know who he was. Great. And so it's really interesting because she's into 30 for 30s, but she's more of a casual, if not any sports fan. Yeah. And so she didn't remember him. And I'm sitting here like, you don't remember this epic match? U.S. Open, yellow racket, you know, what is he, late 30s at that point? 39, yeah. And just, like, I remember just, I was taking tennis lessons. I remember where I was when I was watching this. I spent 15 years of my life in Des Moines, Iowa. So I'm from D.C. and Des Moines. Like born in D.C., but I'm in Iowa. It's like school's about to start, and this is epic. And so it was really interesting because she didn't know it. And so I feel like is that what kind of reactions do you get from the the documentary? Oh, it's really satisfying. Great reactions for people who do remember or or don't. And I mean that's an example where you know we got. I mean Aaron Crickstein and Jimmy talked about stuff they never talked about. Yeah. Um, Are you doing the the Q and A? Yes. David, so again, David and I did the whole Q&A. We did every interview. So you're, you're podcasting. We prepped, prepped. You know what? That was the, one of the things that made me know I could do it. The same muscle. Doing the documentary yeah. is absolutely one of the things that made me sure that um, I, I could do it. Because Dave and I together were able to get these people to talk in a way that wasn't um, in any way exploitative. You know, they, they felt better for having said all, all this stuff. Both of them... Both Jimmy Connors and Aaron Crickstein are so happy with the documentary. Yeah. Um, they each got stuff out that they wanted to get out. That's cool. Uh, and the other people in it, too, have um, many of them have expressed to me how pleased they were with that. I love doing it. What a thrill to get to do a 30 for 30. And you won an award for that? An Emmy? Yes. How was that? Lovely. Was that the first 30 for 30 Emmy? It's the first season that's ever won an Emmy. Okay. So the directors of those six episodes won Emmys. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's great. 
Do you have that in your office or your, your podcast studio? It's such a funny question to ask. It came last night. No way. Yeah. So the, we, we won the awards like months ago. Last night at 10 o'clock, um, Amy, my wife, looked at me and said, this, open this box, and then she took out the Emmy. That's cool. So I wasn't going to carry it here today. So it's just I stuck it in a corner well, it's a long of the apartment. Walk. <laughs> well, yeah, I also just didn't. I, it's, yeah, so I just put it, so I put it on top of a, we have a little stand-up piano, and I just put it on top That's cool. So I interviewed this guy, Bernie Sue, and he won a primetime Emmy for a YouTube series. Great. It was called The Lizzie Bennet Diaries. It's a remake of Pride and Prejudice, 90 videos for the modern young woman. And it said YouTube on the Emmy as this channel. I thought that was really cool. Oh, that's excellent. Just like it's coming full circle now. Oh, that's excellent. I, no, I felt, I felt great. And, and I was really glad because like Bill and Connor and all those guys at ESPN, Dan Silver, they won, they won Emmys for the series. And it was the first time. And I felt that was really, I was just thrilled to be a part of it. So then are you still, are you working on a film now or more programming? We're on a series for Showtime. I shoot the pilot um, right after the first of the year. It's called Billions. David and I wrote it with the journalist Andrew Ross Sorkin, who's uh, you know the yeah. host of Squawk Box and started Deal Book and wrote Too Big to Fail. Yeah. And it's set in the financial industry. And um, like I said, we'll start shooting that in the fall, in the, just after the first of the year. Oh, cool. Were you shooting it in New York? Yeah. Oh, it's excellent. I guess it's a banking movie, so. Yeah, New York-based show. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, have, have to shoot it here. And did your vines come from your passion? Are you, are you, do you like to teach people and mentor? I, I guess, you know, I never think in those, I never think in, the t in terms of sort of like a mentorship directly. I always try to take myself out of it. I really try, I just want the things that I say to be things I believe and things that I think have some value. And then people can uh, take those things and apply them however they want to apply them. You know, I hate uh, people who hold themselves out as experts. Uh, I guess people yeah, who hold themselves out as, as, as expert or as experts um, really bother me when they're not actually expert at what they do or they don't really have the experience. And especially in areas of the entertainment industry where uh, outsiders... Um, will uh, they want to believe so much that they will part with money they can't afford to part with, time that would be better spent elsewhere, uh, and their dignity in order to believe that they can get ahead by following some rule that someone says uh, they need to follow. And this Vine series, which is called Six Second Screenwriting Lessons, came out of uh, being on Twitter and doing a Twitter, a, a Twitter Q&A. And I had done a couple of them. And I would get questions that um, within the question was contained received wisdom. And this received wisdom was wrong. You know, it would be um, knowing that as a writer, I have to choose a genre and stick to it because that's all Hollywood will want from me. How do I choose that genre? And I would look at the question and, and think, well, that's just not uh, true. Steven Soderbergh never picked a genre. The Coen brothers never picked a genre. Like, no, uh, you, you just have to find a way to be great and find what you're really interested in. And so the first thing I said into one of these vines, and it was really a spur of the moment thing, was uh, just that um, all screenwriting books are bullshit, all of them. Um, watch movies, read screenplays, let them be your guide. And the reaction, and I tweeted it, and I was nervous about tweeting it, you know. And, uh, but the reaction was um, instant. And, and not just from amateurs. Uh, I remember Josh Molina, who I've never met, who's an actor on Scandal. He tweeted it, like you have to, maybe I'd done a three of them. He tweeted it. Seth Meyers, who I am friends with, but he saw it and tweeted it. And a, a bunch of other people that I didn't know uh, and then all these people started thanking me for this and, and saying it kind of gave them some freedom. And so I decided to do one a day for as long as I thought that I could uh, be telling the truth. And I did 300 of them in a row. And, and now I've done 330 
I don't do them every day anymore, but I do do one whenever something occurs to me that I think will be of some value. And, you know, one of them has 30 million loops, uh, one of, which is very, you know, there aren't that many vines that have more than 30 million loops and was a vine editor's uh, pick. And most of the popular vines are comedy. Almost all um, yeah. are comedy. And I get tweets almost every day. Someone will contact me in some way and say, um, that these things, they'll play them over and over sometimes, and that uh, it got them to make a, a breakthrough. Because what they ended up being focused on was um, really ha the idea of permission, of giving yourself permission to create. Be because I didn't for a very long time. And knowing that if, if what I say can help people break through these blocks, break through the curse of perfectionism, and find their, you know, their, tap into the, 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 the most pure part of their own creativity, they'll just be happier, you know? A blocked artist is probably a bad wife or husband. Um, someone frustrated and scared to really be who they are creatively if they want to be creative. And that can mean creative in whatever way you define creative, right? Um, I think it can become toxic. And so uh, that's, what, that's, what, that's what I ended up f focusing th this on. And I get these no letters from people, you know. Uh, I'd quit, and now I finished my second novel. Or I wrote a screenplay, and someone optioned it. Or I'm writing every day, and I'm so much happier. And, uh, and so I, just knowing that that's helpful to people... You know, it makes me feel good. Like I say, I don't, I don't buy into the mentorship thing. I can't be anything for them personally. I can't engage with them. I can't help them. But if something I said, if they're able to take something I said and then use that, what a, what a great thing about the way the world works now that all of us can get something from that, um, that particular moment and that interaction. So have you always been curious about technology and embracing it not about tech um from the tech side the sadly me. sadly because if i if i were fascinated by that you know we'd be doing this in my jet yes uh, um if, as we fly we'd be ubering on a jet yeah we'd be on the jet <laughs> and then going to land in the ship and the but yeah um but i've always yes i've always been in somebody or the media side of it and yeah who's been early in on any way to communicate uh, any way to, to form a, a group, a new society, that, that stuff. Why is that? I, you know, but, uh, I'm so curious. Yeah. I want to hear. I want to listen. I, I want to know what's going on. I want to know what breakthroughs you've made. I really am uh, constantly looking for how to, for myself, how to reframe whatever my thought patterns are to um, help propel myself to whatever the next level of authenticity is, of really drilling down into like who I, you know, who am I really, and how can I like actualize that stuff? You know, it's very LA sounding stuff, even though we're in Manhattan. But the, you know, if you can actually find like real tools, for instance, you know, Julia Cameron's Artist Way. I'm 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 an atheist. Uh, I don't believe in the spiritual stuff. But the artist way, which is a journal, you know, which um, her prescription is to do this journaling called Morning Pages, three longhand pages every day. That resource, the way she describes it in this book that otherwise is about a lot of spiritual stuff that I don't understand, this tool absolutely helped change my life. And I've seen it change the lives of many people. I want to go find as many of those things as I can. Tim Ferriss's book, The Slow Carb Diet, The 4-Hour Body. I'm not saying every page of that book is brilliant or that I understand the applications, but I'm not going to write it off just because some people think it's hucksterism or uh, I'm going to go investigate it for myself. For me, the slow-carb diet, the slow-carb diet, I lost 20 pounds. It really works. Um, and, you know, I think the way that I found Ferris was on the internet first, right? That's how we first, on when for a work week 
came out, he really marketed it on the internet, and I'm certain that that's how he and I got to know one another. So I'm, you know, that, those are the things. So new communities. And then as a byproduct, does this help your filmmaking? Does this make you look differently at the world? I'm sure that it does. I mean, you know. Because um, you'll definitely be able to potentially market your films better now. Because sure. you have platforms and things. It's not necessarily your intention. Oh, but you look at yeah. I wonder if that's certainly like I mean, a that's positive. A that's a byproduct. That's going to be a positive unintended. Because you're putting good energy into the world. You're doing a lot of stuff people don't pay for, yes. and therefore there is a a goodwill and a trust that you have with an audience. Yes, I think that that's true, and um, and yeah, that may be an unintended consequence. Um, it sounds of, like you're not doing it of all of this overtly no, I mean, for I'm, that. Oh, listen, I'm not. Um, I'm not naive to the fact that that I'm now um, interacting with a group of people that's bigger than than um, most screenwriters, let's say, or directors even are interacting with on a regular basis. And so maybe that conversation that I'm having with those people um, will make those people interested in, you know, looking at the other work. But I say, no, you know, there are probably other easier, better ways to do that. that. Each of these things is, yes, it's all about staying creatively alive. So the way it benefits, it's, it's no different for me than um, I'm a, I read a lot. Like, I read a lot of books. And I read a lot of fiction, too. Uh, so I just read the new book, by um, Murakami, which is a colorless Sukuru. Uh, it's called Colorless Sukuru, and then a lot of other stuff, a lot of other words that I can't remember right now. But I mean, you know, shutting everything else out except I like music playing. What music? And reading uh, that book. What kind of music do you play in the background? I can. Well, he. I don't do this normally, but in that book, um, uh, uh, Franz Liszt Sonata is. Uh, he mentions like 10 times. So the last like 50 pages of that book, I just had that thing on a loop because <laughs> it was like the sound, he designed it that way. That was the soundtrack to the book. Oh, cool. No, but man, I could be listening to Zeppelin or Counting Crows or REM's my favorite band of all time. Dylan, The Velvet Underground, Lou Reed, The Replacements. I'm a music freak. So, um, and Miles Davis, I listen to a lot of Miles Davis or Coltrane. I mean, all that, you know, I can... Whatever I'm in the mood to listen to, I, I listen to a ton of country music too. Um, and why you go? Uh, that's why you go to Nashville. Exactly. I mean, you know, Jason Isbell's album Southeastern is my favorite album of the last few years, um, and I think the new County Crows album is phenomenal. Uh, so, uh, but I was to say, like, um, reading the new Murakami book, which is the oldest analog form of storytelling since just verbal storytelling. That has to be like the most enriching thing imaginable for me in terms of like my creative life, um, being transported to a whole different universe, you know, having this other voice, this other imagination intertwined with my imagination and then walking around through the streets of New York in a daze. I mean, and that just informs everything else that I do in the same way that having an incredible conversation with Adam Duritz from Counting Crows on my podcast does. I'm just always, you know, I don't do drugs. I'm not really a drinker, uh, you know, because a slow carb diet. I'm, I'm not eating a lot of sugar. <laughs> so um, this is the stuff that's kind, kind of nourishment to me. Because you met Herb Hand on a plane, the Van former Vanderbilt assistant coach. Love Herb Hand, Coach Hand, yeah. Future coach of Vanderbilt Commodores. Yeah. And you, you're meeting people on the web. So you have a penchant for connecting your, your business is built around interviews and research and documentaries where you're talking to Jimmy Connors and podcasts. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's interesting how these skills are transferable in so many different ways now because of the web. But you're obviously you know, driven to be with people. Yeah, there's no question that this big conversation is something that I love participating in. Uh, it's really fun. And it's never boring to me. And I guess, you know, because of, you know, each step of this, as something connects, like I had no idea, I'll just say, always looking back, 
it makes things make sense, right? You can always tell the story. Humans, we want to make sense of um, random events, right? And put them in, we want to uh, overlay some kind of order. But each step of this was sort of like, every step is risky. Every step it feels scary. Even putting, outside, even the first vine that I did, you know, for a 47 year old dude to look into his iPhone and take a video selfie and talk about, essentially say that everyone writing about screenwriting is full of shit. Sort of a high risk endeavor. And, um, and I remember standing there with the iPhone and watching the loop of the vine and feeling nervous about hitting send. And then I just realized like everything I ever would say to somebody who would come to me for advice would be, well, of course, push send. How do you, you know, you have to find out what's on the other side of that. And then you have to find out who you are in dealing with whatever the reaction on the other side of that is. Um, and to live, you know, I'll reference a movie, uh, Albert Brooks is Defending Your Life. It's a comedy. I haven't seen it, but... It's a comedy. I have to watch it now. Corolla talks about it a lot. Um, it's a comedy, and, and it's an, an underrated movie. Um, and ultimately what the movie's about is uh, success in life is uh, all about um, defeating fear. And that we're all such prisoners to fear. Now, for some people, it manifests in hypochondria. For other people, it can manifest in like agoraphobia. For other people, it can just manifest in um, my dream is to run a marathon, but I'm scared it's going to hurt, so I'm not even going to run a mile, right? And someone else, it could be uh, I have 500 um, pastels that I've painted at home, but I'm going to stick to my job uh, at the post office and never show those to anybody because what if they laugh at me? And, uh, and to me, that's hell. That's misery. The, the uh, fear, and, and we all deal with it. I deal with it. But in facing that fear down and doing the thing despite the fear, you have a chance for happiness in like this incredibly brief time that we're around. And I think all that came into focus for me really when my son was born. Not, I couldn't have articulated all of it, but the, the whole notion um, somehow was there and I've been chasing after it ever since. My last job at a startup full time was the day after my daughter was born. And I'd worked for founders for seven years. Really? Some successful companies, one was acquired by Disney, one was you know, valued at $200 million. And like we did really well and I was like, look, I gotta, my wife calls this a sabbatical. So I'm consulting, I'm going to do marketing for brands and startups, my podcast and my book. So I'm just about two weeks away from going to agents with my book proposal. And I have 20 episodes of my podcast. And my wife, she's paying the bills right now. And I'm, I'm making some money, but the daughter was born. And I was like, I've been putting on, it's like you can say to yourself, like, I'm going to do this. But then something gets in the way, whether it's work, stress, family. And now it's like, no, this is go time. And I have to do this or it won't happen. And I, I don't know what the end is, but it's already reshaped. I met you, connected with my old buddy Willie Geist earlier today. I mean, it's, it's already opened so many doors and people ask me, do you monetize your podcast? I say, no. They say, do you think you will eventually? I said, maybe. And they said, what I, the ROI is, is irrelevant. The richness in relationships, the ability to... to talk to smart people, the fun I have. That is the ROI. I love promoting this. I'm learning so much more about marketing, just putting my ideas out there. And it's like something that you can't articulate to everyone. And, and it's a long game because there's not a quick hit. You know, I'm still building a base, but this, I, it doesn't matter. It's, the process is so much more important than the actual results at this point. Now, once my kid gets older and I have a second, life changes. But if I don't do this now, I think, I think it's like an alternative path that I, you have to like come to some sort of realization that you really need to enjoy what you do for a living. And if that means you make less money at first, or even overall, 
I think you can still figure out a way to, to, to find happiness that people don't. Oh, I totally agree with that. And I mean, the thing is, my friend from law school who's incredibly successful, um, he's doing exactly what he should do. He loves doing yeah. what he does. That's why he's amazing at it. Um, because he gets up every day and loves business, loves doing that. The return on investment for you is all this stuff. Yeah. That's the ROI. It's, it's, and then that can, will that lead to financial gain? I mean, it probably will. It, it, and it certainly can. Um, I made very few decisions based on, I'm not irresponsible financially. Um, I've definitely taken screenwriting jobs that I knew would pay a certain amount of money. And I've been, you know, I've been very lucky that the thing I chose to do, and I'll say I didn't quit my job. I love that you quit and started this other thing. Um, I didn't quit my job when my son was born, but when I, we start, but I did sort of eliminate everything, but the job, the family and writing the first movie. And I knew I was leaving and I was going to do this for as long as it took. Um, but I, I really admire and, and I'm happy for you that you did that. It's, it's, you know, and, and, and the one piece people sometimes leave out and it's clear you don't leave this out, but the one piece people can leave out is tracing, chasing your dream doesn't mean becoming just a dreamer and sitting around and dreaming about it. Mm -hmm. um, well, I, what I wanted to do was be able to work incredibly hard at something I loved. Because the example I wanted to give to my children was um, you have to work unbelievably hard to distinguish yourself, to separate yourself, to contribute to the world, to do good things, right. to be rewarded for that. That takes maximum Focus effort all the time. Right. You better be doing it on something you love. Yep. Otherwise, you won't be able to activate that stuff. So that was the that was the point. And I mean, um, look, parenthood and parenting is um, always a work in progress. And nobody can ever say, and you know, as as uh, much of a science atheist uh, as I am, um, I'm still I still don't have, I have the last superstition is I can never sort of take anything for granted <laughs> with my children and their health. But both of my kids, um, like today, my daughter uh, has the front, my daughter who's dyslexic and who couldn't read at all when she was very young uh, and now reads incredibly well and um, is thriving. But spelling, those things did not come easily for her. She's 14. Today, um, she has a piece that she wrote on the front page of the Huffington Post blog, the Huffington Post teen. She's on the front page. Uh, she's wrote that. I came home one day. She'd written this thing. Her brother was a Huffington Post blogger, so he told her the name of somebody to email. I had nothing to do with it. My wife had nothing to do with it. Yeah. And today, Anna emails me the second time. She was like, check this out. And she had done that. And um, now maybe she grows, grew up in a house with three writers. My wife's a novelist. I'm a writer. My son's a writer. But... Uh, so maybe there's some genetic thing that like we know how to do that. But, you know, there aren't a lot of 14-year-old girls um, writing front page having to post things. She worked four times as hard as the average person to do that because of the way her dyslexia manifests itself. But I bet you to her it hardly feels like work because it's so much fun to yeah. do. Um, and my son, it's the same thing. He's, you know, I, I won't go into it, but very accomplished young man. And, um, and it's the same thing. You know, he chooses very hard things to do. And then there are hard things that he wants to do and he chases them down. Yeah. So my biggest challenge right now is to articulate this to my college friends, to people that I meet, right. to people that I want this contextualized. And they say, are oh, you writing a book? And I said, yeah, but it's, it's more than that. And a book is a calling card in some ways. It helps your business. You know, it can help me potentially get more work. Absolutely. And help me maybe get public speaking. Who knows, right? Yeah, sure. Not even thinking that hypothetically, but it's more like I can't tell anyone in some ways because they don't get it. They just have to see results. And well, well, Let's walk through that. What do you mean you can't? What, what do you mean? Um, well, they don't have, they don't listen to podcasts. So they don't really understand. They, they see Willie Geist and they are like, oh, some guy from the Today Show. I get it. But I'm interviewing a lot of people that are niche, famous sure. in like the gaming YouTube podcast world. But they're not household names. Sure. But they have massive followings and they're bigger than some celebrities. I mean, celebrities is like an outdated term. 
you're, I think you're micro, areas of influence, you're right? micro famous, the influencer economy, you're influential in your vertical, your community that you've earned over time. And so I'm writing the book to articulate my theory that I've been experiencing in startups for seven years. But are you talking about that you're having a hard time articulating to them um, why you made this leap? Yeah. Why I'm doing it, what it is, and when it's going to work out <laughs> that I'll be making a lot of money. You're just framing. Yeah, well, because you're framing. It's about reframing their question probably, right? It's about turning their question back uh, on them. It's, it's, I think. I think it's about getting comfortable with a few things, saying, um, I don't know where it's going to lead. Yeah, true. And not trying to, right? The second you start justifying, I could, could do this, and I, maybe I'll be public speaking, and you know, and you may, that all may yeah, happen. Yeah, but that's like, it's no, not, I'm saying that all can happen. It's not you. even like worth saying. By the way, I mean, the math of that does make sense, right? Yeah. You, you, um, you write a book, you have the podcast, of course but, that leads to public speaking. So my friends all are raising money, venture capital, angel investing. My brother's building a technology product. He's raised some money. So they're all in this mindset of my colleagues. If you're to start your own company, you need to raise money, build a startup. And it's just interesting. Well, I can tell you one thing. There's one languaging thing you can do for those people. You can just say you've entered the audio on demand industry. Yes. <laughs> Instead of podcast. Right, right, right. They'll understand Reframe it. audio on demand. Yeah, yeah. But beyond that, um, you're becoming a storyteller. Yeah. Which maybe you're not comfortable talking in that way but you're out there trying to do you know when you hear Tony Robbins tell his story I mean he started um, going to people going to seminars learning from them because he wanted to figure out he was fascinated by certain questions which it seems like you're interested in yeah how do people find the thing that they're they want to do how do they become great at that thing yep. and how does that then turn into something they can do for their lives Seth Godin talks about how is it Godin? You know, I called them both names. Because you said Godin earlier and I thought it was Godin. Godin. Oh I don't feel as bad as pronouncing Mike uh Berbigula's name now. Bur <laughs> Um so uh I, but what is, oh wow what this Seth has been fifty five minutes. What is Seth we can finish in a second. What is Seth Godin? We'll uh say? we'll call this a f- coming full circle. He uh has a great book. I, I give it away as gifts it, uh for Christmas. This is a good business book for your son. Um, the dip. The best. I gave it to my son. Okay. You're totally right. It is the best book in the world, and I take it every job I've had. Talk about, you know, uh, or actually another good book is Give and Take by Adam Grant. I do not know I that I had one. him on my podcast. He's a Wharton professor. He talks about how givers succeed the most in life. Yes. And oh, they, yes. And they fail the most in life. And he says takers are the, are the worst, and most of us are matchers. Like, you help me, I help you. Quid pro quo. I have reframed how I look at people. I test people to, if they're takers or not, whether or not I really want to reach out and help them. And that's a good book for your son. Uh, so, that's great. I'll definitely um, give that to him. I gave him the dip. He yeah, loved the it. dip. I had this job. I hated it. And I ended up getting laid off. And it was the best. I got a job 10 days later. I collected severance from the laid off job. It was at this other company that was on the rise. And the dip like really helped me get through it. Because you know you don't want to get laid off. It's terrible. Even if you don't like your job, it's oh yeah, the just the this sort of uncertainty but alone. I was ready to be the best in the you know just like something completely different. Yeah, the the we so Seth is um uh, I don't know when you're gonna put this podcast up, but Seth's um on my podcast next week, and we talked about the dip a, a little bit because that book is one of the most useful short books. Um, I've ever come across. Yeah. You can apply it to so many situations in, in your life. And if you're really rigorously honest in it, in, in applying it, you can just make a decision, uh, about whether to keep going or whether to quit. Yeah, it's great. And it gives you the permission to quit Uh and it gives you the reasons to press on. And, um, I gave my son had a real dilemma about something uh, and some scholastic thing and uh, and it was his decision and uh, and I and I knew if he quit this thing he was going to feel guilty and I, I but I I sensed that the right thing was for him to quit and so I I and he's not a quitter you know so I sent him the book and he was like 
It's okay. It freed, I was great. And he chose, you know, he so, chose to do some other thing and it was a perfect decision. We're trained not to quit. You know, you're weak. You can't give up. You got to make, especially with your career and you're young and you want to, you're hungry, but if it doesn't work for you. Yeah. There's another good book actually in this area, um, which is, there's some, some parts of it are, are, um, uh, framed by religion, but the, the, the other parts of it, uh, for some people that's great. That'll really help you. But, um, but the parts of it that are, that are practical, it's, it's a book called Start by John Acuff. Okay. Actually, the better one by Acuff is Quitter. Sorry. Okay. John Acuff, Quitter. Um, Start is also good, but Quitter, uh, Q-U-I-T-T-E-R, is a gr- If I would have... Quitter, the things that Acuff la- lays out in, in Quitter, which is a book about how to um, recognize what it is you really want to be doing and then how to do it. But the slow transit, the way that he talks about figuring it out is this systematic way um, is really intelligent. And it's, it's what I did. The book didn't exist then, but it's what I did, um, which is to slowly start making progress, work more hours, not fewer, by doing this other thing. Huh. When you're at your job, really kill your job, do well, so that you have that to then, trans- to then leap from. Yeah, Really good. A, a good book to read sort of, alongside the dip is okay. Quitter by John Acuff. He'd be a great guy for you to talk to, actually. Yeah. He's a Nashville guy. Oh, he is? I'll, yeah, I don't know if you get there ever anymore. I was just there for a Vanderbilt game. Unfortunately, we lost to Ole Miss 41-3. to I'll put you together with okay. John Acuff. That'd be great. I'll email you guys. You know, I'll, I'll connect you. That'd be awesome. Email. But he'd be a really fun guy for you okay. to talk to. Cool. Um, well, thank you for coming on. Did we talk about the influencer economy we in the way not. you wanted to? We talked about it. I think there's, this is maybe another conversation at some point, but what I, I just think you're really embracing this technology movement around social media in a way that is like admirable for someone in your industry with your experience. Instead of resting on your laurels, you're not just, you're not staying motionless. You are, you have inertia that you're creating for yourself and you don't even know what the ROI is. You're not worried about it. You enjoy it. You connect with people. And I think there's a new framework of people thinking that are in traditional industries that are changing, that aren't adapting. The people that are thinking or the people that are thinking differently are the ones like yourself. And so I'm just trying to crack the nut as to why you do it. And you've told me in many ways, but it just seems there's something here that I'm scratching on the surface of that I have a chapter about like reinventing yourself, but not really reinventing yourself. Because you're just taking your storytelling to the next level. Well, I don't think... Yeah, because... It's just like an I'm a extension. Na- I would just say that uh, I don't... Again, it goes back to um, not calculating. In a way, um, I'm a native user of this stuff. Yeah. I don't seem like somebody uh, who thinks he should do... You know, you watch people who try to tweet or want to... You know, I'll, I love to play golf. That's, I'm terrible at it, but I love it. I play all the time. Yeah. I cannot get better than I am. Um, I mean, I'm not terrible, but I'm not good, but so, and I'm, I have some buddies that I play with and some of these guys I can, you know, they are like, you tweeted, like, why were you tweeting so many times about X yesterday? And, um, and the answer is, uh, because I wanted to tweet about it because, uh, I knew it would connect with somebody because the deal that I'm making with the people who follow me is I'm not going to calculate what I tweet based on the group of them who are going to take some action based on it. I'm not going to tweet to promote something. That doesn't mean I won't tweet, hey, please listen to this episode of my podcast. I will. Because if you're, if you're engaged in the conversation with me, you want to know about that. But if I think that uh, Tom Watson did a horrible job captaining the Ryder Cup team because he was using outmoded ways of communication <laughs> and not you being an influencer yeah. and using top-down, um, you know, uh, old-school um, uh, boss sort of mechanisms, I'm going to tweet about it because, uh, because I think the deal I made is when I get that kind of thought in my, in my head that's a tweetable thought... Yep. I'm not gonna overthink it. Just share it. I'm gonna share it. Yep. Because that's the that's the culture that we're in now. And if you're not, I say this to people in my business all the time. Like, I don't understand people who say I don't get Twitter. 
I can't do it. Uh, movie stars, it's fair. For movie stars, um, they have too much to lose. Uh, so I understand why certain movie stars don't want to do it. But other than mo really movie stars, I don't know who in any business, but it's particularly in, in, in my business, who doesn't want to actually be in this conversation? And what do you think, what do you think you're protecting yourself from? Right. So as I talk to you this whole time, I have like flashbulbs going across my mind, like, okay, what's the chapter? What questions can I figure out? Like, where does he fit in the book? And in filmmaking, I talked to this guy, Bernie Burns. He created a series, Red versus Blue. It's a machinima filmmaking told in video games, a story around Halo. He just raised 2.5 million on Indiegogo for crowdfunding. He invented, he, he didn't invent a category filmmaking machinima, but he defined it because he was early and big. So he gets a chapter. Freddie Wong raised a million, he raised $700,000 on Kickstarter for, he had 7 million YouTube subscribers. So what he did was he helped to build an audience and migrate it over, right? And he didn't think that Kickstarter would ever exist. So in some ways you're like him because you just had this conversation with Bill Simmons over email and on the blog and you didn't think podcasting would, I mean, it just, there's something here. I need to think about this because you, and with, I mean, just with your age, with your experience, why bother, right? Most people, your situation, like I'm looking in your, your, your office right here and you got posters from damn movies you've written that have done really well. You've won an Emmy for this Jimmy Connors video. Like why, why bother? I mean, and I think that's like, I live in LA. That's such a common like, idea people have. Yeah. Well, I, I understand why that's, I mean, I understand that question, but I don't ever, I just don't ever think of it that way. Um, I view this all as opportunity <laughs> to keep scratching the itch that I have. I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, uh, we're all scared of labels and to self-apply labels, um, as you know, uh, the cowboy says, uh, in the big Lebowski, you know, no one would self-apply that where I'm from, but, um, I mean, the difference is like the, I guess the filmmaker, you know, I mean, you know, you look at these posters and yeah, you th see movies that have, you know, Ocean's 13 or The Illusionist or Solitary Man movie we wrote and directed. Uh, and you may see things that were successful in some way, but w these are all artistic expressions. And that's what this all is for me, right? I made a decision at 30 that I was going to find a way to live as an artist. That was the, I was going to find a way to live as an artist. However, I define that at whatever given time. And, um, and I want to help. And, and then as you get older, as I got older, as I looked around, I guess I thought that that decision was so transformational for me that if I could help other people, one, if I could help other people to live however they defined artists as an artist, that would be great. I mean, Seth talks about that in Lynchpin, but if I could help people do that. And then on my podcast, The Moment, if I could keep having these conversations that would stoke in me some um, greater version of that artistic impulse because I pick something up, then isn't that lucky and great that there's a vehicle by which I can, in a formal setting, sit down with an artist I really admire and dive into how they do what they do. And so I don't ever frame it in terms of like, you know, why would I do it? It's like, well... Why wouldn't I do it? Yeah. You know, that's oh, your chapter title. Why dude, wouldn't I? I mean, I can't say anything else after that. Well, listen, thank you. Um, this one this went over an hour, so I will not really edit this. I mean, oh, I think it's great as is. Like, well, great. Like I'm a used to be a big fan of the Grateful Dead, so you get one set and you good. This is our Grateful Dead set. Well, hey man, this was uh, this was fun to do. Thanks for asking me. Thank to do you it. for having me. In New York. Hey, people want to find me. I'm at Brian Koppelman on yep. Twitter. The podcast is The Moment with Brian Koppelman. You can find it on iTunes. And, um, you know, like he said, now I have people listening. Go watch one of my movies. If you don't okay. know Solitary Man, go watch that. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me on that episode. Brian Koppelman was an awesome, awesome guest. Really loved that episode for a lot of reasons. One is that it was something that I, I reached out to Brian on Twitter and I hadn't ever known him in my life. Previously, I've 
heard his podcast before. I know Rounders, and I tweeted him, said, hey, Brian, I'm going to go to New York City for work in a few weeks. Any interest in coming on the podcast? So he DM'd me and sent the direct message that said, hey, uh, send me an email. want to find out more. Your site looks interesting. So we talked about the influencer economy over email, and he thought it was cool. Invited me, and then he invited me over to his office. So I met him on the Upper East Side or Upper West Side of New York City. It was awesome. And uh, it was really a transformational trip for me because I had previously interviewed Willie Geist that day. And Willie was a friend from college, but it was just a nice validation that what I'm doing here matters and that people in media that are, you know, host the Today Show or uh, podcasts, guys like Brian Koppelman, that they, uh, they validated me in a lot of ways. And I know you don't need that in business as much, but it, it matters. It really does. Because when you do something like this, you take a risk out, you're making a lot of your noise in a vacuum. And the key to the influencer economy, one of the principles in the book is collaboration. And you have to collaborate with others to succeed. And so getting that kind of collaboration with these old school media guys was awesome. And there's a lot more going off in my my general direction. I'm in my front yard. It is hot and humid in LA. Julia is taking a nap and I couldn't be more than happy to have a few moments to record the intro because these are some of my favorite parts, you know, the extra, the intro and all that good stuff. So anyway, uh, really excited to get the next few episodes out the door and without further ado, I'm heading over to Duke Zebert's with Julia for some chicken in the pot. Mm-hmm.